This is Radio Maria. And welcome to Philosopher's Corner with Professor John Rist. A very warm welcome this afternoon. My name's Edmund Zengeni. I'm joined here by Professor John Rist. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome back again. Thanks very much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for braving the cold weather and making it over the other side of town to our studio here in Cambridge. Now, if you've, this is the first time you're listening to us. This is a, a fairly new program. We've had one episode before. It's called Philosopher's Corner. And what we're here to do is to discuss the main currents of uh, philosophy that have shaped our times over the last, uh, well, 3,000 years or so, shall we say. And what we'd like to speak about today are rights, human rights more particularly. Where do they come from? What do they actually mean? And most importantly, are there any prerequisites in order to rationally claim to recognise their existence? So, Professor Riss, let's dive straight in without further ado. You've spent decades, I think, on this wrestling with this question of human rights. Would you be so kind as to walk us through, a, give us a, a brief history of where rights come from? Yes. Um, well, in the hit course of Western history, they've not been all that around all that long, um, 400, 500 years. Um, the possibility of them, of course, existed before, um, particularly in general notions about human worth or particularly in the traditional Christian language, human dignity. But not much was really made of that. Um, people, of course, talked about rights in the Middle Ages, but they weren't subjective rights at that time. What they were thinking of was the rights of groups of people against another, against others, kings against bishops, burghers against uh, feudal lords, and so on and so forth. But I suppose perhaps caused more than anything else by the expansion into the New World in the 16th century, People began to talk about rights of persons who apparently had been treated unjustly. Um, some of the earliest people to do this were a couple of Dominicans, um, one of them better known, uh, um, Las Casas, um, interesting figure. Um, He'd been a landowner in the islands for some while, and at that point he didn't see much point in having um, in in in, uh, in bringing in African slaves because you could enslave the the Indians anyway. But after a while, he did, came to the conclusion that um, slavery altogether was unjust. And he, which is, of course, a comparatively new thing, because although people know who recognised it, they assumed that it must be their part of the natural given in human society. There will always be slaves in some way. Nothing you can do about that. What you can do is make their lives a little better, and if you're a decent person, you'll do that. But the institution as such is that it was regarded as a permanent phenomenon of human life. Well, Las Casas took the view that um, it was unjust, um, and he made then the rather decisive move for his time, and it was picked up by others, 
of saying that um, people had a right not to be treated like that. Individuals had a right to do so. And particularly striking at the time, in view of the um, savagery of the local religions in the, in the, the New World, he claimed that there was a right to religious freedom. Um, and the job of the missionary was not to, as it were, suppress people, but to persuade them to live a better kind of life, have a better kind of religious theory. But he put this in terms of justice, and although that seemed okay, it in a way left the way open in the future for uh, rights to be taken out of the religious sphere as they originally were in, and put in a purely secular sphere, whereas we shall see there was good reason to think they might not be able to be defended. Because um, Las Casas and other people who talked about rights in that period, Hugo Grotius, and above all, of course, John Locke, who is often cited in modern discussions of these things, they talked about rights as, in some sense, distributed by God. They offered different reasons why God might have done this, but the general point was that a right can be explained in some sense within a theistic universe and it was not assumed that you could do anything if you hadn't got a theistic universe. In fact, genuine atheists or near-atheists such as Hobbes, for example, were quite uh, were quite clear about this. Rights are, are just don't exist. Um, they're some sort of metaphysical piece of muddle which, which theists absurdly introduce. So what we've got in more modern times, if you move from, from Locke to now, is that Locke is saying that there are human rights, subjective rights, not to be treated in various ways and so on. Though, of course, it was still left unclear which rights you should actually have. Nevertheless, they did all depend upon the existence of God in some way or another. That is, as reflecting the fact that God wants people to have a certain dignity and rights guarantee that dignity. But unfortunately, um, later on, um, people wanted essentially Locke's uh, conclusion, i.e. that there are rights, but without Locke's premise, which is the existence of God. So that left the modern people um, in a position of having to try and defend rights without the reasons for their defence, which Locke and Las Casas, Grotius and all the others had originally proposed. And in fact, they've signally failed to do this. Um, Bentham was quite right when he talked about this. He refers to rights as nonsense on stilts. And that would be a perfectly accurate description, in my opinion, within an atheist universe. So in other words, what we're talking about in the modern world is if there are rights, what are they? How do you defend them if you don't believe in the existence of God? My view is that you can't do that, in fact, that Anybody who really believes that there are rights beyond that is merely legal rights, and that's perhaps a distinction we shall come upon later on, has got to find some explanations of what a right is, who has one, what to do about conflicting rights claims and such like. What about back in the ancient world, almost at the dawn of Christianity, what was the, uh, the stage set? What was the main dominant forces on uh, when it comes to terms of human rights? Were there any in the ancient world? Not really, no. I mean, uh, in the ancient world, um, 
and to some extent even in the medieval world too, um, if you're thinking about ethics, you're not thinking about rights, you're thinking about virtue. You're thinking about the, 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 your, the preachers, the philosophers and the rest of it who are interested in these things want to tell you what a virtuous man will do. In other words, concern, you think of it at that end. Of course, by implication, if you think that something should be done to somebody and not done to somebody else, there is a potentiality for a theory of rights in there, but the conclusion was not normally drawn. That the, the, the way it was always approached was, what should the good man do to other people? And it was put in those terms. So we, we think of this as what we now call very often virtue ethics. It's been revived quite a lot in modern times as a result of a number of uh, prominent 20th century philosophers like Elizabeth Anscombe. But it's a basically Aristotelian idea in that form. And it's, it implies if there are rights, they are secondary to responsibilities and the moral qualities of the agent. Secondary to. Yes. I mean, in other words, there's a, rela- there's a relationship between rights and responsibilities. The ancient man, if he were offered a rights theory, would say, responsibilities come first because you should be concerned with looking after your own being a good person. If they entail um, that other one, somebody else has a, a right... That's how it would follow, but not the other way round. In other words, you derive rights and responsibilities and duties, but you can't derive um, responsibilities and duties from, from rights, rights, as the modern person seems to think you can. Could you explain why, how excuse me, the modern person seems to think you can derive um, rights from responsibilities? Well, I don't really know how he does it because he, he doesn't really answer this question. As I, as I said before, um, most people who talk about rights assume that they are such, such such a thing. I suppose what often happens is that they confuse the notion of a legal right, that is, what, when someone can get a law passed to allow, and something which is stronger than that, which is a universal but, of course, um, there is a real difference between what is moral and what is legal. Um, and merely because you have a legal right, that is, you've, you've somehow got the power to compel people to behave in this way and say that X has a right and you're not allowed to treat him badly, that doesn't really follow that these rights are more than the regulations of some human society, which another human society can perfectly well come along and change. Why, why is one a rights-based theory better than a non-rights-based theory? In my view, the, the humanist or anybody else talking, as it were, in a non-theistic context has completely failed to answer that question. In fact, they don't even raise it because it would involve... It, it, what they do, they compartmentalise their behaviour. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll give a good example of this. There's a marvellous example of it from the Nuremberg Tribunal. Um, here, um, uh, Goering, for example, in his defence, said that he just obeyed orders. Mm-hmm. He didn't do anything illegal whatsoever. Okay, I see. In other words, um, he, he claimed that his behaviour depended on the positive law of Germany and there was no problem about that. Well, that wasn't accepted by the judges. They appealed to some notion of natural law which would override the local national laws. 
But in fact, most of the judges, and perhaps even all of them, didn't really believe in natural law. They, the natural law they appealed to was the old Christian account of a natural law in some sense given by God, and most of them just didn't believe in any of that. So you've got another example of what I was talking about before, um, people wanting a conclusion, i.e. that there really are um, in, uh, more than natural, national laws, there are universal laws, but no explanation is given as to how they are formed, what they are, and so on. Why they exist, even, sure. Yeah. How far do you think the Christian account of the natural law had an influence, then, on the on the history of human rights? Well, it had a huge influence originally because uh, the people who started talking about rights, Las Casas, Grotius, Locke, and from various angles, these people were all Christians of some kind or another, um, the, the atheists or near-atheists of that period, let's say Hobbes, um, didn't believe in rights at all. Um, they were being quite logical, in fact. So it is a Christian phenomenon, um, but it, it's a Christian phenomenon which depends upon the fact that in Christianity, any kind of ethical theory has to be supported behind itself by some metaphysical or theological claim which the atheist either doesn't like or just doesn't want to hold or rejects. Well, he can do that. But if he does that, what rights he got to talk about rights at all? <laughs> As I was doing a little research for this and uh, just a few notes here and there, I was searching across the internet and I saw a video on human rights just to understand what the modern kind of take on it is. And according to the UN, there's more than 30 human rights that are all lumped together that are called human rights and they are listed in this Declaration of Human Rights. This is the world's most widely accepted document on human rights. But what I noticed, interestingly, when I was doing this research, that there was no mention at all of Christianity. No, well, that's, of course, in line with a great deal of modern thinking. You remember that the... Um the uh, founding documents, as it were, or the basic documents of the European Union um, talk about the growth of Western civilization um, down to the end of the Roman Empire, then they jump to the 18th century. In other words, they leave out the whole Christian oh, well. period altogether. So, you know, it's not in view of that kind of thing, it's not at all surprising that Christianity doesn't get mentioned. But in fact, as, as I was trying to say, not only was Christianity responsible for right theory, but it's very difficult to see how there could be a right theory without Christianity. Mm. It appears to be that case, yeah. So, how about Bentham? How does he fit into all this? Well, Bentham is like Hobbes. He's an, he's an atheist. He's just logical. He realises that, if in a, that we, the, an atheist must live in a value-free universe so that whatever laws are passed are based on the decisions of human beings. They can be no more than legal truths up to change. Now, he thinks that some are better than others, but um, um, that, that's a matter of almost a personal choice. Um, there's a story about Bentham, in fact, that somebody asked him, he was, he was a well-known philanthropist, did much good in many ways. Somebody asked him, why do you do that? And he said, well, I just like that kind of thing. I mean, this may not be true, but it certainly works, as it were, in a reasonable account to apply to him. Of course, the objection is other people like other kinds of activities too. Why should you prioritise yours over anybody else's? The answer to that is you prioritise it if you've got the power to enforce it. That's the only way to do it. I see, I see. Great, great. Well, if you've just joined us, we're here live from our studio with Professor John Rist, and we're talking on rights on Philosopher's Corner. If you'd like to join in the conversation and phone in for a question, the number to dial is 01223 
0122235564. That's 0122235564. We're going to take a very short music break now as we open up the lines. And, uh, Professor Riss, what song have you chosen for us this afternoon? Uh, the Boar's Head Carol might seem appropriate to the season. Okay, well, here it is. The Boar's Head Carol. The Boar's Head in hand bear I bedecked with bays and rosemary and I pray on my master's in all the land which thus bedecked with a gay garland and a severe cantico caput apride ferro redens laudis domino a steward hath provided this in honour of the king of please which on this day to be served This is Radio Maria. Very warm back, warm welcome back to Philosopher's Corner. I'm here with Professor John Rist, and we're here discussing rights. And many of these topics are from one of his latest books. He wrote together with his wife Anna Rist. It's Confusion in the West, and I'd like to say now it's a great read. It's available now, I believe, on Amazon. Is that right? Yes. Okay. It's and now published. It's published. It's out there, and um, I was fortunate enough to to read the book before it came to print and uh, I thought it would be a great idea to use as part of a theme for uh, for this th series that we're, we've embarked upon. So let's get back to our main topic, which are rights. And we've gone through already a history of rights. And let's talk about perhaps the disputes among different types of people that are saying, you know, one, what, one right against another. Where would you uh, like to begin on that? Yes, well, this is a very serious question because, for example, you made the husband inventor right, which has never been heard of before. Um, Notoriously, this yet. happened in the case of Roe v. Wade in the United States, where the judgment um, in favour of abortion depended upon the, quote, right to privacy, yeah. uh, a, a right which, of course, didn't exist. And among the founding fathers of the Constitution, it was invented by the judges at the time. And what that shows is that anybody can claim some kind of right. Right. Um, doesn't matter what it is. But, of course, it does raise the question, sometimes these rights may quarrel with one another. Um, obviously, the abortion issue gives a good example of this. People talk about the right to life of the unborn child or, for example, the right to life of the mother. These may be in conflict. How do you resolve them? Well, there are two alternatives to way to resolve sort of claims like that. 
In some cases, of course, you might say, well, you can just dismiss some claims as absurd. Um, I remember when I was in Toronto in the student newspaper, somebody wrote that every student's got a right to get drunk. Uh, This didn't be taken seriously. But if you said, for example, every student has the right to have enough to eat, that would be rather different. Now, what kind of claim is that? Well, um, the... uh, in some sense, it might be something I just like to have, um, which, of course, isn't good enough because all sorts of things you might like to have, which is no particular reason why you should have. Does that fit in with a bit of Plato as well, about the necessary desires and yes, unnecessary the, the, desires? Yes, the distinction is made by Plato, not with reference to rights, but generally in, a, in his analysis of desires in the Ninth Book of the Republic, he distinguishes between uh, natural and unnecessary and necessary and unnecessary desires necessary desires for him would be um, food and shelter basically and then he has a minute sort of subgroup which are natural and and unnecessary that's sexual desires and then everything else is something which would be maybe necessary but not natural and perhaps not even necessary very likely unnecessary desires in other words anything you like could be put into that platform and the, the, the claim that the student had a right to get drunk would be one of them but so it isn't just it can't be right surely even for the atheist can't be just reified wishes or reified desires a better claim would be that they are reified needs in accordance with what Plato was talking about in that passage. That is, you really, that some things you really need, and you may say, I have a right to have them. But have you? The curious thing here for the humanist is that it, he, by saying that, yes, you have, he's breaking one of his own basic rules as set up by Hume. Um, Hume always claimed that you can't derive value statements from statements of fact. So that means that if, if it's a fact that you need food, it wouldn't follow that anybody has any obligation to give you any food. Okay. Um, you do need it. That's perfectly true. But, of course, in the, in the, if you look at the natural world, which is what you'll be dealing with here if you're dealing with a value-free universe, the, the giraffe might not have, or the, the, the antelope might have a, a genuine need not to be eaten by the lion, and, but the lion still eats the giraffe, and that's how it is, as it were, or the, or the antelope, whatever the animal is. So... Essentially, we're in that kind of world. It's rather sad that Hume pointed out the weakness of this kind of argument, but conveniently here, though normally Hume is a bit of an idol, here something usefully said is ignored by the, by the humanist, in fact. That is, they're claiming that in, a, in their world, a godless world, that in some sense you can move from statements of fact to statements of value, i.e. X has enough value that he should be given, say, basic rights to food, shelter, and so on and so forth. But he actually, it, that, that is so, what you, it means in fact that for the humanist, Rights can be neither reified wishes nor even reified needs, even if those needs are genuine, because there's no reason why anybody should accept to follow the reason unless it can be enforced again. In other words, rights in the humanist world are simply what you can make legally enforceable. And we see this all the time now with the arguments, for example, about LGBT rights and so on. They've come into prominence because somehow or other people have got to the position where they can enforce such such rights on the public, whether the public like them or not. Mm. Um, but that's just part of the confusion which we're all in about rights. Mm. So what we've got to find in some way or other is a way to 
decide or have, at least begin to decide whether if rights do exist, why should we accept this one rather than that one which seems to be in contradiction with it? Again, there's no real answer to this in a, in a non-theistic universe. Um, it's a, uh, it, it becomes an arbitrary decision in the end. The Christian, of course, can do a bit better than that, um, and maybe some other religions can too, but certainly the Christian can, because he would want to say that the only rights which are legitimate and therefore are natural, not merely legal, are those which in God's view, as understood in the religion, will make people better. In other words, if a right makes you better, you have some sort of claim to have it. If it makes you worse, then there's no claim to have it at all. Um, uh, that's based on the fact, of course, that God does not want to make you worse. Um, but again, that's a claim which a Christian can hold, showing that his account of rights on this area too is not merely better, but even begins to be comprehensible without compartmentalizing the, the mind as the humanists will normally do. But even in the uh, the theistic world, there's a lot of arguments over what is right, what what who should have what rights, and what those rights should be. So it's not all that one big well, happy it, family. Well, there must always be arguments about this. You can't avoid that. Um, um, as in, in in most philosophical questions, you have to de rely on, on doing the best you can, so to speak. Okay. But if you start with a basic principle that no one's got a right to do things which will either harm himself or harm the society in which he lives, unless that very special reason can be found for that. For example, in, in the case of what might happen in a just war would be an example yeah. of that. Unless you, can, unless you can do that, then you must assume that uh, for the Christian, yes, he, he, he will say, have to say to his, his believers, um, you've got, there's your axiom, you can claim a right if you really believe that's what God would want you to have in order that human beings should be better. If you, cl if you claim something else, then you're contradicting yourself. Mm, what, like the student who got the right to, to get drunk, for example? Yes, yes. Well, that's, that was, I mean, I picked that example merely because it, it's quite arbitrary. But actually, the, the, the Supreme Court in the United States were equally arbitrary when they suddenly said we have a right to privacy. They, they offered no justification for that for all. It's just that we like that idea. That's mm. all it was. And you can see one of the reasons now why Roe Wade was struck down. I see. I see. So... With regards to the abortion issue as well, that's obviously human rights has a lot to do with that. And uh, who gets to have more rights, the mother or the unborn child? Yes, well, um, obviously extreme cases like that are very difficult to arbitrate and it's probably possible, it, it may be impossible even to, to give a, a rule which, which will solve that very rare problem in it, as it is in the modern advanced society. Uh, there, you obviously, as with most cases in the end, the rules will go that far, but in the end, it's got to be up to the to the individual in accordance with his own beliefs, particularly if they're Christian beliefs, of course. But whatever their beliefs, he must he must decide the difficult questions by himself. You can't make a law which will solve every single problem. In the end, the law gives you guidelines, quite strong guidelines in this in this case, but it won't solve your problem in 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 some in hard cases that you have to use the virtue of prudence, um, and that is an important 
important and often neglected virtue, I would say, in good deal of discussion among religious people. Um, there, are, there, there are some people who seem to think that prudence just doesn't matter almost. I don't want to go into that now, but the, okay. I just throw that idea out. Interesting, yeah. <laughs> I, would dig, I would dig deeper on that, but uh, we, we only have a certain amount of time. So when do you think uh, there was this split when the secular world wanted to still hold on to these ideas of uh, ethics and human rights, but put them into this uh, atheistic compartment. When, when was that split started, would you say? Would you say we said we know no Locke is the sort of founder of human... Well, Locke is, Locke is still a theist. He's still of a course, Christian of some kind. Yeah. Um, but it, obviously the problem grows as atheism or at least even agnosticism becomes more and more prominent. That is in the 19th, 19th century, century, primarily yeah, yeah, in the 19th yeah. century. Yes. Um, but even then, it's, it took a long time for these Christian habits, so to speak, uh, tribal habits almost when people ceased to be Christian, but still they were there in the society. It took a long time to wear them down. Um, what We're dealing here with a rather wider phenomenon which you can observe in 20th century history, for example, in the United Kingdom. Um, when I was a boy, um, I had no... I was brought up as an Anglican, but I gave it up when I was 13. But I had no idea that... But I couldn't possibly conceive that the number of people who are Anglicans now would be a possibility, that the church would have got in such a mess by now. It would have been beyond my imagination. But in fact, what, what happened, in fact, in that case is that the structures, as it were, for destroying the Christian base were in place, but it required catalysts of some kind or other to make it work. It's as though you were suddenly bursting a balloon, and the, the, the balloon then burst, the, the Christian base was wiped out, and for a while the Christian conclusions, as I said, like Rock's conclusions, remained. But it's only a question of time, in my view, before they will begin to be eroded too. There's no reason why, in the end, and indeed you can see this now in all sorts of areas, there's no reason why the destruction of Christian ethics and metaphysics won't be followed by the destruction of Christian practice as soon as large enough people come to recognise that those practices are merely legal formations. There's a very good example of this in the history of philosophy at the end of the 19th century. So I was saying that's the key period for this. At the end of his long book on the history of ethics, Henry Sidgwick says, I've written this long book to try and show that duty and happiness are reconcilable. But I failed. Now, what does he do? Well, if he were Plato at that point, he would have said, well, we go back to the beginning and start all over again. That's not what Sidgwick does. What he does is say, there's a real social danger if people realise that duty and happiness are not reconcilable. It's a, it's a threat to the social fabric, and we need the social glue. So we have to pretend, in some way or another, that it does work after all. Um, now, that pattern has been repeated endlessly in, in more recent 20th century philosophy. Um, you, so you've got a virtual morality yeah. uh, coming in to replace the real morality. And the people who know about this are, are, in my opinion, in most cases, purely cynical. They do know the history of all this. 
but they're quite content to leave the impression that, for example, rights have a solid base outside Christian the- or some other theistic position. They're quite right to have all sorts of things on the table which are convenient to social glue. Mm but which have no real defence. In other words, they're, they're trading on and, and deliberately increasing popular ignorance. Wow, OK, OK. Well, at that point, we're going to take another little music break, and uh, it's my ch- turn to choose one. And if you'd like to phone in and ask Professor Rist a question, we're here. The number to dial is 01223-375564. That's 01223 Three seven five five six four, and we should be back after this music break. And today I've chosen Take Five by Dave Burbeck. like to call in the numbers 01223 375564 
This is Radio Maria. Very warm welcome back. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Philosopher's Corner with myself, Edmund Zengeni. I'm here in the studio with Professor John Rist, and we've been unpacking and discussing rights, human rights. Where do they come from? What do they mean? And what meaning do they have to us these days in this post-Christian world? And we've got uh, someone here, not just someone, but our, our dear new colleague, Tim, who's just joined us now. You've been with us uh, three weeks now, is it? About three weeks. Okay, great, great. And uh, I know you've been listening in while you've been working away. One of the perks of the job is to hear what's going on. And you said you might have a question for Professor Rist. I do. I do indeed. Thank you, Eddie. Um, and thank you, Professor Rist, for what's been a really interesting talk so far. Um, my question consists in the, the relationship between um, rights and truth. And um, it comes from a personal experience I had when I was a student and we were doing uh, philosophy and we were also doing uh, learning about human rights. And um, I can remember as we were going through just the practical implications of of human rights and and uh, how uh, these affect everyone's lives, the question kept on coming into my mind, but where do they come from? <clears throat> and of course, I had the my own uh, Christian belief to to inform me, but when I when I placed the question before the lecturer, she said that um, what we should think of is is that uh, it is the laws which give us the rights, and that was the the best answer that she could come up with. So I have I have a question and then a follow up question, and the first one is what is the connection between rights and truth in the Christian tradition, and then. I'll have a, another question after that. Well, certainly um, any serious right theory must have some relationship to truth. Otherwise, it's purely arbitrary. When I mentioned the example of uh, the right to get drunk, that seems to be pretty arbitrary. And there's no reason to believe it's true that every student's got a right to get drunk. Um, and obviously, from the Christian point of view, um, we're talking about truth all the time because we're talking about the existence of God and the fact that, and, and since, uh, since God is, in Christian terms, traditionally associated with truth as being the source of truth, being the, that the, uh, the means of identification of what is true and what is false, um, there is no problem from the Christian point of view about this. It, it, something which seems to be a, a claimed right, which in some sense infringes upon truth as understood as re reflecting God's nature, is not going to be a very good claim. Um, your uh, your teacher, of course, did what most people do, of course, in those circumstances. They haven't got any real answer to the question. They say, well, it's relied on the law. But as I said before, and I mentioned the case of Goering, um, the law can be set up in any way you like. Almost anything can be made legal. Um, and that that brings me to a question which I'm going to discuss a bit more later on, which I'll leave your, for your subsidiary question first. But I'll just say... What happens in such cases when people get um, start talking about what's legal? Now, here's a really extreme example. I cited it in our book. The commandant of Auschwitz, Rudolf Hirsch, delivered himself of the remark, I'm perfectly normal. Even when I was engaged in the work of extermination, I lived a perfectly normal family life. 
In other words, he didn't apparently see any contradiction between the work of extermination and living an ordinary Catholic life. Most people think this is really a rather bizarre claim, as it were, but people believe that. And he's an extreme example, but he's only an extreme example of a phenomenon which is extremely common in our society. To see how common it is, you need to read someone like Max Weber talking about bureaucracy, for example. The job of the bureaucrat is to make things work in the very small area that I run. It doesn't matter what happens outside. Or as Tom Lehrer put it in a rather famous song about Werner von Braun, um, the rockets go up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department, <laughs> said okay. Werner von Braun. Well, it, that, now, th- th- these examples are telling you that um, what exists in, in this, this world, in this, the bureaucrat, as Weber puts it, lives in an iron cage. His job is to do a specific thing without asking what are the implications for other things. A, 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 an atheist philosopher actually has given some rather good examples of this. I'm thinking of Derek Parfit, who has, a, who has an example in one place. He talks about what he calls the case of the harmless torturers. This involves an, an, an experiment where a whole bunch of people in different rooms are asked to give somebody an electric shock. It's very, very tiny shock. But if you put them all together, of course, it's very unpleasant indeed. They don't know what they're doing. They, all they know is they say, they obey the order, give someone an electric shock. Now, the, the aim here is to, is to, the aim of that experiment is to show you that it's possible for other nasty people to take advantage of the fact that people just are willing to compartmentalize themselves, not bother about anything beyond, not ask the further question, well, why do we do something like that? In other words, they're, they're, they're deliberately encouraging people to un- be uncritical, which is, in fact, exactly the opposite of what I regard as the mark of the philosophical life. The philosophical life is best de- de- described, I think, by Plato's Socrates in the Apology, where he says... The unexamined life is not fit for human beings, i.e. subhuman. Um, That doesn't mean just to be a cynical sceptic. It does mean that insofar as you can test what you believe, you should do that. So there's the question of truth coming in. And that's particularly relevant for Christians because, of course, they often don't do this either. They get themselves in some other form of compartmentalization. For example, if a student goes to a Catholic university, he's normally going to be a Catholic, thinks he is, when he comes in. He knows that he is a Catholic. If by the time he leaves the university, he doesn't know why he's a Catholic. In other words, he's asked the question, why am I a Catholic? The chances are he won't be one much longer. There you go. There you go. Yeah, please, by all means, yeah. Tim, carry on. If I can ask the second part of my question. So, I, thank you. That was a, a wonderful um, answer to, to what I'd asked. Um, so, I think it's... It, the three of us at least agree with the connection between truth and rights. Um, the, the perhaps a more pressing question for myself is how do you um, how do you present this to a person who doesn't believe that, and how would you uh, show them that their sort of construct of rights is empty without um, some kind of underpinning of of truth? Well, all you can do is draw attention to the fact that they are deliberately being blind. I mean, if someone says, I've got a right um, to have something or other, it may be genuine, it may be okay, but 
if they say that and they're they're speaking from an atheist point of view, you've got to say, well, why have they got a right? What does that depend on? Well, they'll say, first of all, either the law or what should be the law. Then you ask, well, how do you determine what should be the law? Um, and, of course, that immediately introduces the fact that you can, you can only answer these questions if you go beyond the legal. And that's exactly what they don't want to do. In other words, what we're trying to do is to get them to face the reality, as it were. It's, it's not that we want them to become theistic, but to point out that if they want their rights, they ought to become theistic if they want to remain logical. Yeah, exactly, um, yeah. And they, on the whole, they'd say, I do want to remain logical. Some will say, no, it doesn't matter about logic. But you can't do much about people like that except not buy a second-hand car from them. <laughs> there you go. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim, for your question. Great, great. There you go. Bit of practical advice there as well. Let's get back to this comportmentalization. Could you unpack that a little bit more for us and uh, its ramifications on the issue of, of human rights? Well, the compartmentalization um, arises from the fact that you you do want the right, but you know, or you can know, and in many cases you really do know, that you can't defend them. So you just shut, you, you close your mind at that point. You just refuse to accept what was one part of yourself what another part of yourself knows to be true. This is compartmentalizing. As I said already, it's the mark of the bureaucratic mentality as described by Max Weber. Um, of course, <laughs> when you're making these distinctions, they would vary from case to case. As I said before, you can't lay down a law... It, it's always been a bad mistake of, of a would-be theorist to make out that, oh, yes, there's a, there's a problem here, so we'll pass another law to solve the question. All that does is give hotshot lawyers a chance to make more money because you'll find another way around this problem. And there's no way of getting around that. There's always going to come a point where the hard case, and, of course, hard cases make bad law, generally speaking, where the hard case will, say, will be thrown back at you and you've got to say, well... Am I going to persist with this or not? But, of course, in the case of the issue we're talking about now, you, the question is, am I going to persist with a, a situation where I'm denying with one part of myself what I believe to be true with another part of myself? Or is this a subhuman way to behave? In other words, a way of evading responsibility. OK, so compartmentalization has a lot to do with that. Yes. OK, OK. So do you think the issue of human rights has become a bit more, even more blurred over the last 50 years or so than it was before? Oh, yes, certainly, because when, pe when people started talking about rights, they had a very limited number of rights they, they would talk about. They would talk about the right to not, well, maybe not be enslaved, to um, have the right to marry, and they might raise the right to vote and things like that. But, and some people had the right to be treated honourably, made some phrases like that. But it's a very small agenda, whereas now there are thousands of rights claims of all sorts of different kinds. And that's precisely because, in fact, although rights are better defended as reified needs, um, but not well enough, as I said, they're generally simply reified wants. I want this, therefore I say I have a right to have it. Most rights are that. And, of course, under, under that kind of rubric, you can have any number of rights you like. That's quite a different, wholly different world from the world of people who first started talking about rights, whether they be Las Casas 
on the one end or lots, Local, for example, yeah, on the yeah. other. Mm. Yes, it's, it's all expanded, completely out of control, and, and people just don't have fired any kind of criterion except for the, what the one the Christian has, of course, which they won't accept, um, as to how you can sometimes limit the number of rights claims. And, of course, the more you don't limit them, the more clashes between pseudo-rights and other pseudo-rights you're going to get. Do you think the bubble's going to burst eventually? Because I feel that myself, with my limited knowledge and expertise it's, it's in the field, it's it hard feels to like know. It's, it's gone off a hook. It's hard to know. Um, off a cliff, almost. Um, Something has to give now. Well, it, I think it really depends on the on the wider issue, um, as do so many other things. The wider issue is, is there any future, for example, in Europe of, of Christianity or not? If there's no future for Christianity in Europe, I see no chance of improvement at all on this kind of issue. Um, it's just going to get... People may recognise the contradictions. That'll merely push them into despair, um, um, nihilism, mm. probably an increasing number of suicides, particularly yeah. among young men and so on, things like that. So it is a... Re- I mean, I don't, it doesn't have to be the Christian religion. Other religions are possible. And indeed, non-religious claims are possible too, but they will be metaphysical. They'll be transcendental. They will involve something wider than the, than the fact that we merely know what we can feel and through our senses, as it were. Um, in a present society, all the pressures are the wrong way, basically, because instead of being asked to be more and more critical, as I've suggested you should have, the unexamined life is not fit for human beings or is a subhuman life, we're being pressured to be more or less exactly copies of one another. Um, in other words, democracy is being abased as some form of egalitarianism. Egalitarian understood as the ideal world is when everyone's exactly the same as everyone else. What, the same well, amount of education? And yeah, but, but that result, of course, if you think about it, is exactly what tyrannical rulers actually want. The German word in the Nazi period was Gleichschaltung. Gleichschaltung refers to the state of where all the ideal people are the model SS man. Right. He just does what every other SS man would do, simply obeys orders. There's a tendency in our society to want to, to, to say that democracy, therefore, means making people alike, homogenizing them is the word we use in the book for this. And um, this seems to be not only radically undemocratic, but it's disastrous for human behavior, and it leads to a new forms of in, de facto totalitarianism, which are more and more visible in our society. Because if someone claims, I don't want to be called, and I know, there's no reason why I should be called something exactly the same, with somebody else in an egalitarian world so we can try and stop you doing that right. probably by force if right. necessary and we've seen this in the cancel culture do you think the critiques of uh, of christianity would say the same thing to us though that uh, we're trying to create this uh, this slave morality where we're all well christians of course heard and we're all being good and we're all well christians of course have um uh, used force to impose christianity i'm not advocating anything like that at all Absolutely. but um they, they are also saying that we have an argument that if you want certain kind of conditions in the world you've got to consider the theistic option um, and we're going to try and persuade you of that you might try and stop us persuading them but if you do that 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 we regard that as offensive not only to us but by your own nominal standards it's offensive you're trying to stop people expressing their views and then criticizing the the rules of the society around 
that procedure, of course, is a very dangerous one for some people. It can be. I mean, it was for Socrates, for example. It led to his execution right. and other people too. Nevertheless, if you manage to suppress everybody like that, you're going to get your homogenized society, which is, as I say, radically subhuman. So how would you suggest for younger people, younger Christians especially, who are out there in the, in the secular world, in the post-Christian world, They've got to ask themselves, um, as it were, how do I defend my position? And particularly, they've got to look at what they say and make sure they don't buy into assumptions which are alien to their real beliefs. Because if if you start an argument with, a, with an atheist by accepting some of his propositions, which in fact are contradictory to your own, you've lost the argument straight away. Mm-hmm. You've got to be very careful the way you express your objections. And you've got to make out, that, yes, I, this much I know, this much I believe, this I believe to be false. In other words, they've got to be critical. In those matters, they've got to be critical. And they've got to challenge the opponent to be critical. As I say, I've said to you, I think, before, when I was teaching in an atheist philosophy department, I did take the view, essentially, to people that um, your your arguments may be, uh, my arguments may be bad, but yours are a hell of a lot worse. That's, and you can see that if you think about your own arguments. Yeah, I do like that quote, I must say. <laughs> that was a bad large form of it. Yeah, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. So how do you see the future in the next... I know you're, not a, uh, you're a philosopher, not an, an astrologer, but what, how do you see the future, uh, what, the way things are going now? Well, obviously one doesn't like it. I mean, I don't like it anyway. Uh, and I try and point out, you know, how to, to modify it, how to improve it. Whether that will be successful, who knows? I mean, societies come and go, civilizations come and go. Ideas come and go. There's a real parallel between, in my opinion, the state of Europe now and the state of the Roman Empire just before its fall. Oh, right, okay. Um, And uh, when that happened, it took many hundreds of years to rebuild. We may be in a similar position. Right. Part of the church, what can they do to improve this situation, do you think? Be honest, primarily, to not not to hedge their bets, not to make out they're too close to the things which they really shouldn't be very close to at all, not try and cozy up to powers outside, but to challenge them. Um, the, the Christianity in modern culture necessarily must be countercultural. If it isn't, it's failing. Right. Yeah, it's a contradiction in terms of all yes. isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, look, we're coming almost to the end of our program now. It's uh, a couple of minutes left. We shall be back next month, the second Wednesday of January, to continue this discussion. Again, if you'd like to uh, phone in at some other point, the number to dial is 01-223-375-564. And you could either leave a, leave a, a message for us as well, for myself, or, and I can pass it on to Professor Rist. And we'll be back next month. I think we spoke before and we were speaking about perhaps the possibility of doing a program on original sin. Yeah. So uh, that will be something very much to look forward to. Which will be both for not merely theological. It will also be empirical. There you go, folks. <laughs> well, you've heard it here. It will also be empirical, not just philosophical. Well, I'd like to uh, thank Professor Riss for coming on today and uh, giving you, giving us your time this afternoon. I'd like to thank Tim as well, called in for the question. And to all our listeners out there, I hope this has uh, helped 
strengthen your faith and uh, the arguments that we uh, that we have against it. So I'm going to say goodbye now. This is Philosopher's Corner and this is Radio Maria. <laughs>